Welcome to the Dialogues podcast, brought to you by the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. This podcast features the voices of Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists in an ongoing dialogue about theology and ministry. We provide Asian American ministry leaders with a forum for dialogue, support, and critical reflection on ministry by Asian Americans, especially in Asian American ecclesial contexts. Welcome everyone to another podcast. My name is David Chow. I direct the Center for Asian American Christianity, and I'm delighted to host a conversation with one of our mental health plenary speakers, Dr. Jeannie Park Hearn, who is Assistant Professor of Practical Theology and Formation at Portland Seminary. Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. I was... um. Really happy to see you at a conference recently and to, to kind of connect with you in person, um, which was really nice. We're, we're going to hang out in the next uh, bit here virtually and talk a little bit about Asian Americans, mental health, and spiritual formation. Um, I see from your job title, you have formation as one of your pro- professorial tasks. So maybe we could begin our conversation with how you understand spiritual formation. What is it? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I'm continuing to um, think about, to consider, to reflect on. Um, And I guess I'll talk about it probably not in just one sentence, but maybe as a collection of thoughts here. Good. I think spiritual formation is um, an area of the Christian faith and life that needs direct and explicit attention. And by that, I mean, Um, What is the part of the human person, and also I think community living, that helps us to tap into something that's bigger than ourselves? And so formation is a practice, a discipline, um, an area of study and reflection that, that incorporates multiple disciplines to, number one, become clearer about what's happening in the human person, what's happening relationally. And then to ask the question, how are dynamics happening internally, externally to us that shape, obstruct, amplify, make more more robust the possibilities of experiencing the grace of God, the the relational aspects of the Trinity, um, who we are as beloved and bearers of the image of God. There's Mm. so much that's a part of who we are in our communal life as well as our individual lives that shape that. And um, spiritual formation is an area, again, of study, of practice, of reflection that is really deliberate about paying attention, focusing on that part of the human being, that part of the community that, that can connect, again, with something that's bigger than the individual struggle, the individual celebration, the individual sort of like... Um, earthly life, if you will put it that way, because there's a sense of imminence and transcendence, even within spiritual formation. Like, how do I experience the presence of God through the living witness of Jesus Christ here on earth in tangible ways? And then because God is so much bigger than what we could ever imagine, there's an aspect of God that is beyond our imagination. And yet, I think because of God's grace, it's accessible to us. Um, because that's a gift. And so formation, spiritual formation is tending to 
that part of us, that part of our community that can be receptive to all that God wants to pour out to us. Because my sense is sometimes we get in the way, our communities Mm. get in the way, and it's trying to sort of like clear the terrain so that there is a clear like pathway of, of experiential knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, the movement of the Holy Spirit, and the love of God. So that's kind of like how I'm going to talk about it like right now in this moment. And it could be nuanced differently if you ask me tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeannie, that's a really helpful description, quite expansive description of what spiritual formation is. I really like the note you ended on about experiential knowledge. And I feel like this will be, become a be a recurring theme throughout our podcast conversation, this notion that our knowledge of God is uh, spiritual formation seeks a holistic knowledge of God. So I hope that we can continue to unpack what holistic knowledge of God might mean. As you were describing spiritual formation, a question kind of popped in my head, and that is, does context matter? And let me kind of unpack this a little bit. So um, I'm a second generation Chinese American, born in the US. My parents are from mainland China. That's part of my particular history, family history even. And then when you study Asian American studies and a little bit of Asian American history, you understand the 1965 Immigration Act is a really significant thing. And lo and behold, my parents immigrated to the U.S. in 1966 mm. because of the Heart Seller Act. Um, you know, so when it comes to your background and context, maybe as a woman, as a Korean American woman, as a second generation Korean American woman, how do these contextual factors figure in or not into our spiritual formation? Oh, yes, they absolutely do. Um, because our context becomes the content of our stories. Um, mm. They are the backdrop, if you will, of our relationships. And so our parental units, our grandparents, our cousins, our friends, our churches, um, they are the environment out of which we know who we are. And so our context absolutely matters. What happens anywhere we are in the world, when we go out onto the street, when we're in school, when we're in our offices, when we're working, when we go to the grocery store, all of the world around us shapes who we are and who we are is the container for formation to happen. And I think theologically speaking, um, there's something to be said about the truth that God became human in the form of Jesus Christ. Um, If context didn't matter, then would our beloved God have to do something in the form of humanity in order to convey something to us? And so I think just even in the Trinity and in, in, in Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is, we have a theological sort of underpinning of the, 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 whole, the, holy, the potential holiness in our context, the sacredness of our family lives, the sacredness of our immigration stories, the sacredness of who we are as Asians in America, um, filling our imaginations, shaping our emotions, our feelings, informing what's happening in our bodies, all of those things, context matters. And we are who we are because of our context. And I think our context comes to us not only again through our own experience, but the experience of our 
of generations that have gone before us. And because we are relational to the core, and again, the Trinity is an example of the relationality of who God is, the nature of God, um, that relationality, if we are image bearers of God, then we too are, are relational to the core. And so all of our relationships become part of who we are. All of the contexts that form our relationships, that becomes a part of who we are. So we can't, I cannot think about formation without thinking about context. Um, so yes, I, I think it's it's critical to consider. I really appreciate how you are at the same time giving us a theology of spiritual formation insofar as you're talking about incarnation, which is part of Christology. You're talking about the nature of God as triune, and you're sort of using these biblical theological motifs to frame your understanding of spiritual formation. Do you want to add anything else about this kind of theological reflection upon spiritual formation? Yes, I do. And let me collect my thought here. The God that I know is not known without grace. And because of that grace and because of the relational nature of God, and also I think the living witness of Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry, um, our Christologies, as far as we understand that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, um, that Jesus experienced all aspects of the human condition. Just because Jesus was also God doesn't mean that Jesus didn't experience um, suffering and hardship and pain and betrayal and brokenness of humanity. And so there's this sense that, oh, Jesus was God, so he didn't experience these things. No, absolutely, Jesus was fully human and therefore experienced everything that we do. I think because of that, um, there's this sense that when we're invited into spiritual formation, God doesn't participate in our formation from on high. God participates in our formation here in the present moment. And so one area of spiritual formation that I'm thinking about are pastoral visits, um, our meetings with spiritual directors, things that we do in small group ministries. It's in, it's in the earthiness of those, those conversation, those relationships that the spirit of God is, is so present and the spirit of God is ministering unto, teaching, shaping, loving, gracing, pouring out mercy, all of that touches us. Wait a second. So yeah. Jeannie, are you saying that if I just follow three steps or if I just read a book on my own or if I just pray in my closet by myself, that that's not really like formation? I'm saying this kind of um, sarcastically, but say more about the nature of formation and what formation is. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say that formation isn't happening when we open a book or it isn't happening when we go into our little private prayer closets. Absolutely. Those are all key elements of formation. Anytime we open ourselves up to the spirit of God to do something in us, we're being formed. And so there's nothing that's off the table as far as how God can show up in our lives. Now, the tricky thing is then is that sometimes because of what we've gone through, the pain points in our lives, the pain points in our parents' lives, in our grandparents' lives, the pain points of the Asian American community, that those things stir up fear, anxiety, worry. I mean, my goodness, I, I have moments where I have gone to the grocery store and the thought has crossed my mind, like, what if 
somebody came in here with an assault rifle and started shooting around. Or when I'm walking my dog in the neighborhood, I still have mostly black hair. <laughs> it's graying, but it's still mostly black. And so when people see me on the street, they can see that I'm Asian. And so I am honest to goodness. There are days when I have wondered, hmm, I wonder if that car that's driving by sees that I'm Asian. And I wonder if they might do anything to me because I am. That, that is forming of my interior space. That, that, that fear is forming me. That worry, that trepidation is worrying me. It's impacting my body. I might feel the stress in the moment of my heartbeat elevating. And all of those feelings and affect states that compound over the years, what if, what if the anxiety was so profound that I cannot see beyond the anxiety? And then the anxiety, I'm just using that as an example, mm -hmm. it creates almost like this negative force field that nothing can penetrate because the anxiety is so palpable and so it immobilizes me. How can I then allow the grace and the tender mercies of God to shape me if I'm so defended because of my fear? So hmm. spiritual formation would then come in alongside and say, what's happening psychologically? What's happening in this person? What's happening in this community, psychologically, sociologically? And can we unpack together the dynamics of defendedness, the dynamics of anxiety, the dynamics of worry, the dynamics of grief and loss, anything else that you can name, such that the individual and the community might have a clearer pathway to experience the expansiveness of God. Now, the expansiveness of God is always there. The sunlight is always shining. It's just there is a layer of thick cloud that doesn't allow the sunlight to directly penetrate and, and so that we can feel the warmth of the sunrise, of the sunlight. And in the same way, oftentimes individuals and communities have such a layer of gunk for various reasons that the, the, the tender mercies and the sweet breeze of, of, of the spirit of God can't reach. Not, not because it's not there, but it's because we can't see it. We can't access it. Not because we're bad. We're awful human beings. We're like, you know, the scum of the pond. Not because of that, but oftentimes because there's just too much stuff that gets in the way of our being able to receive, to receive what's so freely given. And that's what spiritual formation is also about. It's like, okay, what's going on? Let's see if we can figure out all the layers and then maybe move things around, rearrange furniture, um, toss some things, jettison some things that are obstructing. And, and how can we shape the person, the, the community, so that um, we can experience more of the living God. I have so many thoughts and I'm trying to discern the guidance of the spirit, even through this conversation. So let me pick up on one theme that is emerging as I listen to you about 
our anxieties, our experiences of loss, this kind of cloud cover that blocks the sunlight of God from, from our hearts, from our, from our persons, and how spiritual formation helps us navigate this, okay? So it strikes me that spiritual formation is almost like a skill of knowing ourselves and knowing God through knowing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if that's, if that is something that we can learn, acquire this skill, it's almost like the the image I have is kind of growing in self-awareness, growing in self-understanding, becoming reflexive. And maybe that's what meeting a spiritual director or a prayer partner or a spiritual friend, there's different modalities here. Going back to Alreda of Revo, spiritual friend, friendship, you wrote a treatise on that. We have uh, prayer partners, accountability partners. There are all sorts of modalities in which we are trying to discern the spirit of Christ speaking to and through us so that we can see better this complex thing and then navigate it better. That's what's coming to my mind. And I just welcome your comments. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, there is this commingled um, self and God awareness that is that we can access. Hmm. Now, I think oftentimes many Asian evangelical faith communities are highly suspect of anything that might wed and marry these two because the self is not something that we would um, readily consider to be a part of. So self-knowledge and God-knowledge being a part of the same thing. Um, and I think what I'm hearing you say that it is, and I agree. And so um, I think we have a tendency to, um, you know, speak ill of of anything that's related to the self, but there there is something to be said about um, being aware of the self. Okay, first of all, do we even like ourselves? Let's let me let's start there. Like first, we have to like like ourselves, and then we can even begin to imagine like what it would be like to really get to know who I am. And I think that's part mm. of the part of the challenge is I don't think I I, I wonder. I wonder how much we like ourselves and I wonder how much we know ourselves. Um, and I can't help but to, I can't help but to wonder if so much of our lives is about escaping the invitation to come into deeper knowledge of ourselves, which makes it possible to come into a deeper knowledge of, of God. All right. I want to read. I want to read the opening sentence of this work. Yes, the Calvin's the, Institutes. Okay, Calvin's Institutes. This is under Book One: The Knowledge of God, the Creator. The opening sentence is: Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts: the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So. Calvin had the foresight to understand wisdom involves both knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God or a kind of double knowledge. And um, I think it'd be interesting to see how in uh, this very late modern period of U.S. society, how, you know, in the world of therapy, therapy seems to be investigating self-knowledge of a sort. Mm -hmm. And maybe spiritual formation is doing that under the aspect of God. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of see how 
yeah, there's there's a lot of directions here, but this gets back to that experiential or holistic knowledge we were talking about. Mm-hmm. How our knowledge of God needs to really be framed in a way that is relational even to ourselves. Even to ourselves, absolutely. Even to ourselves. And I would imagine I'm thinking also we have to start with ourselves. Hmm. And I think it's it's a slippery slope because I think what we're hearing people say these nowadays is that this this culture and this this day and age we're too obsessed with ourselves. It's self-care, it's self self this, self that and 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 there's um there's probably a, a a high level of suspicion around anything that has the word self in it. And my argument I think would be to say actually what we're seeing isn't a love of self in today's society. It's more I think an escape of self. Hmm. I think we're if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us can say that we can sit with ourselves for an extended period of time and be okay and be at peace? I think for many of us to be still with the self invites the possibility of experiencing shame, experiencing guilt, experiencing the reality of relationships that are are are, are wounded and maybe fragmented. Um, to sit with ourselves would invite um, the the resurfacing and the bubbling up of grief and loss, and so it's unbearable. Wow. I mean, so I want to I want to kind of lean into this this other thread I hear in your comments about the junk of life, the broken relationships, the anxiety, the loss, the pain, the suffering, the things that we seek to anesthetize ourselves from. Uh, we want to be happy. We want to see the glass half full. We want to have hope. But oftentimes our experiences and what the world throws at us is totally counter to that. So that's one thread, but I want to pick up that thread and go back to the context conversation about our being Asians in the U.S. And maybe, and you also were talking about our our parents, our grandparents, our kids, this intergenerational family life with its pressure points, its pain points. And so I'd love for, I'd love to hear more reflection about our specific context as Asians who have migrated, because every Asian in the U.S. came from Asia, (laughs) and that involved some kind of migration, immigration, or refugee sort of experience, which in the earlier podcast with our our good friend and colleague Jessica, she talked about it as a migratory loss, as a form of trauma, right? So how does that begin to shape our response to pain? Yeah, that's a great question, David. I'll attempt to respond by way of a personal story. Hmm. When I was in elementary school, I remember my maternal grandmother visiting from Korea. This was the first time I met her. And she was here with our family for an extended period of time. I don't remember how long it was, but I know it was certainly not just like a week because those of you, those those folks who um, have relatives from Asian countries that come here, they, they, they come for a while because it's an investment to come over to the United States. And so might as well make it a long time, right? And so you've got to hit all the sites. You've got to hit as many families as you can. Um, so my grandmother was here and um, my Korean 
isn't that good. And it certainly wasn't that good when I was a child. And so we couldn't really communicate, but I knew the significance of her because my goodness, she was my mother's mother. And so I think one of the things that growing up, I carried in me the sense of pain and longing for connection with relatives in Korea. On top of that, my mother um, was born in what is now known as North Korea. So I had this family lore that I grew up with, where in my mind, I created this story of relatives, uncles and aunts and great aunts and great aunts and cousins that I will never know. Mm. I will never know them. Back to my my maternal grandmother visiting. Um, so she was here for an extended period of time. She made these interesting sandwiches for us because sandwiches were not, they're not, a, they weren't a Korean thing. They are now, <laughs> but at the time they weren't. And she did her lovingly best to make sandwiches for us because she knew sandwiches made sense in the United States. And so she created this concoction of apples and mayonnaise and I don't know what else, but put them in between two pieces of bread and called it a sandwich. Anyway, so we have these lovely memories of my grandmother and it was the day finally came when she had to leave. Hmm. I don't know if she was going to another relative or she was going back home to Korea. Back in the day, we could go to the gate to see off our family members. And so we all went to the gate to see her off. And um, she was on the plane. And I remember my mom standing in front of the big window at the airport and watching the plane, probably until it wasn't in view anymore. And as a child, and reflecting on this as an adult, and I've reflected on this for quite a few years now, that image of my mom gazing out the airport window, saying her goodbyes in her heart and her mind, it's burned on my brain. It's burned on my heart. Hmm. And what screamed at me in that image is loss, <laughs> sadness, grief, disconnection. And the and really, I think a baseline question of like, why do we live so far so far away from people that are supposed to be the closest to us? Because a mother and a daughter is one of the most intimate and tightly wound relationships for humanity. And the fact that they that your mother is separated from her mother by an entire Pacific Ocean is a big deal. Huge deal. So that image screams all kinds of loss. And that is that is an image that I associate have associated with my mom for all of these years. So part of my relationship with my mother is embedded in loss and grief. Now, one does not have to be trained as a psychologist or a therapist to imagine that that that's a big deal and that's shaping of me. Ah. Not only shaping of your mother, but shaping of you. Say more about, well, we're talking about your grandmother, not your mother, but in talking about your grandmother's separation from your mother, it does impact 
your relationship. So say more about that. So I, my experience of my mom is one where I've always imagined that she's sad. And how does, okay, let's ask ourselves the question. What are we like when we're sad? And what are we like when we're happy? Both of those affect states translate in particular ways in our relationships. Just sadness on our face. If, you know, if we have kids, if our child sees us with sadness on our face, or if our kid sees us with happiness on our face, radically different experience. Oh, wow. And so if I'm thinking as a child and as an, as an adolescent and as a young adult that my mom's life is so profoundly shaped by loss and that, and I feel the loss, I feel her loss in me because we rel- <laughs> because we're in a relationship. My mom was always there. She made our food. We lived in the same house. We ran errands together. Her being shaped me. And so her sadness became a part of our lives. And so this has been something that's been curious for me for ever since I was a kid, because that image is something that is very, it's very near and, and, and bittersweetly dear to, to, to my heart. And so now I'm shaped by that. I'm formed by that. And then how is that part of me that's formed by that story and that loss? How is that shaping now my relationship with my, my spouse, my child, with the people that I interact with, my friends, my community? How do I show up? Yeah. So that's a really poignant picture. It's almost poetic in its meaning and kind of evocativeness. And I want to, so I'm, I'm feeling some of that loss from your childhood uh, with your mom and her mom, thinking back to own my own sort of uh, experiences of loss and brokenness within my family context and how that kind of stuff is really hard to process. And based on our conversation so far, part of what I'm picking up is unless we process it, we don't arrive at a more whole uh, knowledge of God or experience of God. It, it kind of impedes us in some way. So that, that's a very interesting dynamic that in order to experience more of the light of God, we actually have to enter some of our personal darkness. Like that, that's the kind of thing I'm feeling. So then, and I see you nodding. So then let me add the twist here, which is a little confession. I'm kind of a fan of Disney world. Like (laughs) this is well known in my family. Like my wife's side of the family lives in Los Angeles. And to be honest, if there's a chance to go to Disneyland, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the first to mention it. (laughs) And they say it's the happiest place on earth. Um, my point in bringing this up is simply, and I, you know, I just watched the Barbie movie um, over the weekend because it's now streaming and Barbie land is this like happy, just place and all that kind of stuff. So Hollywood 
and movies are escapes. <laughs> they are escapes to feel good because many times we do not feel good. So in other words, um, American culture wants you to feel good. You have instant gratification through flipping through your phone, um, eating something quick and fatty and relatively cheap. I mean, our entire consumer-based culture is incentivizing pleasure, mm -hmm. gratification, positivity, which makes sense because we're wired to want the good, want the light, want the pleasurable. That's not wrong. But what I'm hearing from you is there are inescapable features. And in the Asian context, a lot of it comes from this migration structure and racialization subsequent to it, which introduces or is the soil through which we experience difficult things. Mm -hmm. So it's, it strikes me that there's a, a tension here. Yeah. And I'd love for you to speak into that tension. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm thinking back at what you said about um, being our whole selves. And oftentimes mm -hmm. we might not experience the wholeness of who we are because we are, we don't, we don't want to feel some of the things that come with our immigration stories, our stories of being um, Asian in America. And so, as you said, we have many, many avenues to pursue, not to feel those things. And back to kind of what we were talking about a little bit early, this commingled nature of knowledge of self and knowledge of God. Part of knowledge of self is doing a deeper dive into the pain points not not simply as an exercise of um, getting to know ourselves better, but to experience the possibility that God is in the pain point stories. Wow. Wow. Say more. There's this saying in the United States, right? You know who your friends are when it's time to move. Um, moving is hard. You're lifting boxes and it's sweaty and it's an all day affair. And it's just, there's nothing glamorous about moving. You might help a, a, a friend who's moving and they're not even fully packed yet. So you go over there to their house and you have to help them pack. Moving is, is it's, it's a chore. It's a chore. But a friend who will help you through that arduous process of moving is somebody that is, a, is it, like the saying says, it's a true friend. I know this is like a really kind of like an awful sort of like parallel um, story that I'm trying to time to tell here. But um, there's something to be said about experiencing the, the, the mercy and the grace of God in our lowest of low points. Mm. Um, one of, one of the spiritual practices that, that I've been studying with students has been um, to sit in silence. And this is, difficult on many levels for many of us. Um, and we actually sat in silence for 20 minutes for a lot of the semester that we just ended. And part of the invitation of sitting in silence is to consider what it feels like to not escape, to not eat that hamburger, to not eat that ice cream, um, to not go shopping, to not turn on a sports game, to not watch a movie, to not listen to something, to not go on Instagram, but to be completely 
detached from those things and to sit with yourself. Now, what oftentimes happens is all of these feelings and thoughts start to bubble up and to surface. And it's, it can be awful because what we might revisit is that fight that we had earlier with somebody that we love. We might revisit a memory from our past. And so oftentimes I, I will put a caveat out there. If the silence is difficult for you, please break it and go take care of yourself. Because for people who have experienced trauma, silence is, silence is dangerous. And so all that to say that opening up silence is not an easy exercise, but I want to, I'm sharing this example because I, I think it, it fleshes out kind of like David, what you're asking about just in terms of um, self-knowledge and knowledge of God. So I'll just speak, I'll just speak for myself. So if I'm sitting in silence, I may come into an awareness of how of my shame. Mm. So let's say in my silence, I'm remembering that article that I need to write. Mm. And then with that article that I need to write, there's all of this baggage that comes with it. Is it going to be good enough? Am I going to sound erudite? Do it, you know, are, are people going to just like completely cream what I put out there? All of these things start to surface. If I sit in silence, that is a, smooth, smooth, worn pathway, a highway for me to shame. And so I might start getting into my shame. And it's like, mm. I, 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 I'm, you know, you fill in the blanks in the silence. And if I just remember, and again, this is, this is why formation is so important. If, if, if people are, are invested and in, if communities are invested in our spiritual formation in that moment where my shame surfaces, I will know I can imagine that I'm in the presence of God. Hmm. Now, the sad thing is many of us in the presence of God is also a scary thing. In the presence of God is actually even more shaming. It is more guilt inducing. So I I recognize the the variance of of, of, um, experience that comes with being in the presence of God. But for me, on this side of 50, with all the work that I've done up to this point, with more work to do, I can sit in the shame of who I am and be in the presence of God and experience grace. Hmm. Because in that moment, God says to me, you are enough. You are beloved. You are mine. I am with you. I see you. You're most humiliated self. I see you. I still love you. And so, so I'm, so here's this, this moment where I can receive the grace of God, even though I'm swimming in my shame. Now that is only possible because I looked at it. I've worked through it. I've processed it. I've prayed through it. I've talked to people about it. I've heard sermons on it. I've studied it. All of that makes it more possible for me now to be able to sit in awareness of myself and receive, um, again, like I said, the, the grace of God in that moment. So that's what I'm, that's, that's an example of self-awareness, self-knowledge, and the knowledge of God where it's intertwined. I, I experience God in a radically different way because of my shame because that's where God meets me. Now, am I romanticizing shame? Am I romanticizing any of these 
these things that make us feel awful to say that they're pathways to God? Absolutely not. They're a condition. They're a byproduct of being human on this earth. I'm not saying that these are the things that we need to seek after in order to experience the presence of God. What I'm saying is there's a redemptive quality to the nature of God to, to restore even, even the most painful stories that, that we bring. I have an observation and then kind of two topics to be, to kind of round out our podcast. Um, one on the context of parenting the next generation. So kind of thinking about Gen Z and then the context of church practices, like what can, what kind of spiritual formation practices might pastors, campus ministers, uh, even social workers begin to implement in their communities. But here's the observation piece, which is, it strikes me that you really care about theology because I keep hearing theology in a lived way coming through everything you speak. You say, you mentioned redemption, you've mentioned grace, you mentioned the character of God, you've mentioned, um, in a sense, the doctrine of creation and theological anthropology. You've mentioned uh, indirectly the problem of evil or of human sin. Uh, in other words, we can't do Christian spiritual formation without also having a robust theology that's biblically grounded and that is pastorally attuned for the sake of spiritual formation. Yes. And I think that's one of the gifts of the Christian tradition that we have, um, we have concepts, we have themes, we have buckets, if you will, that help us to organize and make sense and create meaning of our lives. I don't know about you, but I mean, life is just a, just a jumble of stuff. And, and especially on our hard days when we're faced with like, you know, we're going to sleep at 11 PM and we're barely able to stay awake. And if we do like a quick scan of everything that happened in the day, there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot that goes on as we interact with the world. And there's a lot that goes on inside. And the part of formation that I really, really love is that it, it pays attention to what's going on inside, not just to navel gaze. I want to keep stressing that. We don't do this just because we're trying to like be like the best spiritually formed Christian person out there. No, we're doing this for something that's bigger than ourselves, our relationships and how we show up in the world. So given all that's going on out there in here, our faith gives us categories, ways to process. And, and to. so if we have this experience here, like how might I be able to understand this thing that is beyond my understanding within a framework of my faith, within the stories of our four forebears. Um, I'll also say that there's also times when our lives give us stuff that might not make sense. That might not make sense. And the power I think of spiritual formation is even in those moments, can we call on God? And I think the capacity to call on God, to recognize that God can be called on, that's formed in us. The world wants to tell us, go do something else. 
go get another degree, go make some more money, get that better car, get that better outfit, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously I'm speaking to like middle-class Asian Americans. And I, I recognize that there's, we have communities of Asian Americans that, that don't get to just do those things to turn off the pain. I get that. And that's another, that's another mental health conference topic for <laughs> David, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's another really important area of consideration. Um, so the world is going to keep on telling us, escape, numb the pain, anesthetize yourself another way. And our Christian tradition and faith is saying to us, no, don't do anymore. Be, be the beloved, be the beloved that you are. And I think that's what spiritual formation is trying to do. Could you share with our audience some practices, whether individual or church-based? So I'm thinking about, we've got lay folks listening, we've got pastors, we've got faith leaders, and they might want to incorporate some practices that help integrate knowledge of self and knowledge of God. And then we've got community leaders who may be interested in building this in to their community. And I think off the top of my head, I would say, please come to our conference <laughs> on January 12th to 13th to learn more practices that can be incorporated based on the Friday plenary talks, as well as the different workshop tracks. So that's one question is sort of formation practices that um, you've seen bear fruit. And then to kind of bring that, our, our kind of side conversation, Jeannie, is parenting, um, teenagers, like for parents and youth pastors, and even for Gen Z folks who might be listening, are there specific practices for their context as either teenagers or young adults trying to navigate this crazy world that you might recommend? Oh, that's a great, great question. Um, oh, there are. And the reason why I'm slowly responding is that um this is this is a this is a learned posture towards life and the self so mm -hmm. you know i'm included i just want somebody to give me like a piece of paper that has 10 points and if i can just do these 10 things everything will be all right and i'm i'm done right it doesn't work like that um and so Darn. <laughs> i know right rats um it it is it is a it is a posture a posture that a church takes a posture of parenting a posture that we have toward self is um i I, the, I mean the first thing that's coming to my mind is like we need to we need to push pause we need to push pause and we need to um listen deeply hmm. listen deeply to our own stories. Like how many of us like talk to ourselves? Absolutely. Like pause, listen deeply to ourselves, to one another for parents out there, pause and listen deeply to our children, our teens, our adult children. Um, and I think, and, and we'll talk more about this, I think at the conference in January, I think faith communities or churches would do well to do the same 
church life is so much about programs, things that we need to do. Um, and these are beautiful things. I mean, these are things that build community. Um, but I guess the, the baseline question is like, why do we do the things that we do? Maybe that's, that's one thing, one place that we can start is for pastoral leaders, laity to, um, to have like deep listening sessions, listening to parishioners, listening to pastoral staff around this question. Like, why do we, why is it that we do the things that we do? And again, um, I know I'll revisit this in my, my plenary session. Um, so we've talked a lot, I think a lot today about like the crucible experience, like the, the, the struggle, the hardship. Um, and then part of my talk is also thinking about the chalice. And so how can we think about our faith communities, our families, our relationships, and maybe even who we are in light of a chalice that that is the cup of salvation. So mm. not, to, not to say that we are salvation for each other, but again, going back to the very beginning of the session, our, our podcast, and David, with your question, that in our relationships, there's something that's life-giving. In our relationships, there's the possibility that God is incarnating something about the triune God, and that can be life-giving to um to ourselves, to each other, and into our into our faith communities. We are we have been in such a critical time, but the church can no longer mirror the dynamics that are happening in our society and in our culture. The church cannot afford to be a place where people can have permission to disconnect from ourselves and from each other. Our efforts to be faithful need to be coupled also, I think, with some consideration of the why. How is this activity, how is this program forming Christian folks in our church community to be more receptive to what the Spirit of God wants to do in them? I'm sorry, it's not a it's not a five-point checklist of things that we can do to be to be formed. It's a it's a lifelong posture. Um, we need support in it. It's not supposed to be done on an island. But I think it starts with pausing and listening, deep listening, wherever it is we can. Um, that's that's my attempt to to respond to a really good question, David. It, that that is a wise word, Jeannie. Um, I think in this season of Advent, which is about waiting, waiting upon, uh, we can tie in listening, listening to what the Word of God mm-hmm. wants to say to us in this season of waiting on the incarnation. Jeannie, I want to thank you for your wisdom, uh, your stories, your insights, uh, sharing them with, uh, with me and with our audience. And I really look forward to your plenary talk in January at our mental health conference. Thank you for um, hanging out with me on this podcast today. Thank you for being such a gracious and wise host yourself, David. Thank you for listening to the Dialogues podcast. The Center for Asian American Christianity invites you to join our ongoing conversation on Asian American identity, faith, theology, and ministry through the Dialogues magazine, the Dialogues in Asian American Theology and Ministry Public Gatherings, the annual Mental Health Conference, and the annual Asian American Theology Conference. 
You can find more information and sign up for our newsletter at caac.ptsem.edu.